Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Annie. Good morning, Annie. Yeah, we've got an almost full house. We've got uh, Annie, Fiona and Tilly in the uh, studio and uh, we've had an action-packed week. Uh, I've been off to the Social Economic Forum, which is uh, sort of uh, taking a bullet for the uh, team because uh, there was uh, long and sometimes not that interesting conversations from the big end of town. Lots of politicians uh, got to hear um, slow-mo telling us all about... uh, how he's going to give uh, tax breaks to small and medium business, which family concerns, which were uh, up to $50 million. I don't know if that rates as a small business, but that's interesting, isn't it? Um, I later talked to somebody who actually was part of a family business, and he was quite interested in what the man said because he thought it was off-topic because he pointed out to me, and I don't know if anybody really thinks about this, but his business, his family business, actually uh, produces uh, uh, kitchens and bathrooms, and he said that they make a very small profit, uh, and so if there's going to be a tax break, it will be on a very, very small amount of profit. (laughs) So uh, that puts it all in perspective, doesn't it? (laughs) If you're not making a huge amount of profit, then what's the benefit in in the tax cut? Yeah, Uh. exactly. And when there was the press conference, I asked uh, Slow-Mo about – I got to ask a question, so I asked him about wage theft – um, you know all these nice family-owned businesses with all the who are employing all these people. But what about wage theft? Because it's it's astronomical. And uh, he just turned around and said, "Oh, it's just illegal. It's illegal. It's got what's that got to do with anything?" So if it's legal, it's not happening. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty hilarious. What I a thought. bully. Yeah, that's right. He, he suddenly stopped being Mr. Nice Guy and went straight into being Mr. Pushy Pushy, <laughs> which is funny. But anyway, so it was kind of interesting. But we did get something out of it, uh, and that's going to be the first part <coughs> of the program. Uh, there was a discussion about uh, social media, and uh, I guess what uh, are the things you're going to be scared of, really? <laughs> And later in the program, we're going to do a follow-up with uh, an interview that uh, Tilly sorted out. With the Her Place Women's Museum? Yeah, that's right. They've with got the a curator? Yeah. A yeah. couple of uh, great exhibitions coming up, one in Melbourne, one in uh, Ballarat, uh, and it started off in Morwell. 
So that's a very interesting uh, opening up of uh, people's eyes about, around uh, women who have contributed to society. Very interesting. And following that, we're going to have a word with Steve Jolly, aren't mm. we, Fiona? Yeah, so... Um, he's running a campaign with a few other councillors for the for a northern for the northern metropolitan seat of the Senate um, in the upcoming state election. It's a um, it's it's a very inspiring campaign, and it's a real. It, there's a lot of people behind this, um, and you know there's a good chance that they will get the seat. Um, and I think it would be yeah, it, it's it's going to be very interesting to follow this campaign, and, and we'll, we'll be chatting with Steve later about that. And before we do, a few important messages. Join 3CR's breakfast teams at our annual film fundraiser on Saturday, October 13th. At Loop Project Space and Bar. 23 Myers Place, Nam. And we'll be screening the film Life is Waiting, looking at referendum and resistance in Western Sahara, followed by a post-show live panel discussion featuring Kamal Fadel from the Australian Western Sahara Association. Now, tickets are... Good $15 for the waged and $5 unwaged at the door. So come along, have a bit of fun. All proceeds go to Keeping Breakfast Programming on air as 3CR so you can keep hearing these beautiful voices we have at our radio station. And that again will be on Saturday the 13th of October from 5pm. Film starts at 6, um, preferably show up by 5.30 and hopefully to see you all lovely people there. Well, I love 3CR and so I'm going to definitely be there. Hi, I'm Romy. I'm 14 years old and I'm part of a group organising a children's march for Nauru. Kids on Nauru are not free. They are suffering very much. Join kids, youth and families on Sunday, October 21st at 11am at Birurungma near Fed Square to call for the freedom of refugees in detention, especially children. This is a peaceful, family-friendly event and will include children's speeches and singing. The Artist Committee is a 3CR supporter. Yes, what a sweet message. <laughs> uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with the team and uh, on 3CR. And uh, as I said, one of the things that people were talking about was uh, social media and uh, the issue was, uh, has it destroyed privacy? So perhaps we'll just go straight ahead and you can have a listen to what you should be scared of. Welcome to the evening's proceedings. My name is Jackson Hewitt. I'm an Associate Editor at the Australian. Um, we've got a very quick and very fun little chat for you before you go into your dinner this evening. Um, we're talking about social media and is it really ruining privacy. We have a fabulous all, um, panel here to discuss this. We've got experts in free speech, cyber security and cyber policy. But I'd like to start with some chats with the audience. I'll start with you, sir. Um, what social media platforms do you use? Um, I use Twitter, I go Instagram, I use Facebook rarely, but it's there. And how much do you how much do you share of your personal opinions on on those platforms? On Twitter, a lot. Yeah. And you feel good sharing that with the rest of the world? Yeah. And how about you, man? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, and that's it. And you, because you don't want to be on social media? Yes, I'm very wary of uh, Twitter and well, Instagram. I might have a go at Instagram, but really not interested in being on Twitter. Okay, and over here, Miss Emma Gray, how about you? What, what do you use? Uh, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, but not Twitter. And what do you share on Instagram about your life? 
uh, food photos, outdoor photos, scenic photos. And what about political views? Do you talk about those on your social media channels? Not at all. Anybody else here has political views they share on social media channels? Just raise your hands for me. Are you the only one? We've got two back here. Hang on one second. <laughs> what do you discuss on social media? I have a 5,000-person Facebook group that looks at urban issues in Melbourne, and I'm pretty forthright in that group. And how do you find the conversation in that group? Generally quite good. As a moderator, we come down on people who uh, attack the person uh, rather than the ball. That's great. All right, well, let's jump into our panel discussion. I want to start with Claire Lehman, who's the founder of Quillette, an online magazine that, that celebrates free speech. Some use it a lot for, for political opinion, some, some don't. It's a good thing, right? We're opening up uh, debates. Uh, we're getting rid of the old kind of barriers to having a conversation. Surely it's a good thing. Yes, it's a good thing. Uh, it's a foundation of democracy to be able to disagree with each other and tolerate disagreements. What I find alarming, however, is when people get mobbed online for expressing a political view or sometimes even sacked by their employer and they've said something that has nothing to do with their work and their comment wasn't made at work but because uh, it, it causes offence or outrage... Um, their employer feels the need to sack. And so we've had examples of an SBS sports reporter sacked for a tweet he made about um, Anzac Day. Uh, a woman was recently let go from Cricket Australia for a, a tweet, a, making a political tweet about uh, abortion, I think it was. Um, so there are, there are um, risks that employers use social media as a tool of surveillance of their employees. And I think we need to be careful about that. And it's not just an issue of civil liberties, but it's an issue of workers' rights. I mean, people should be able to have their private opinions. And if it doesn't affect their work, then uh, it doesn't affect their work and they shouldn't be sacked for them. Uh, Fergus, um, over here was mentioned sort of the idea of moderating and, and, and clamping down pretty quickly on people who have views that, that perhaps might be considered trolling, for instance. So, uh, you know, surely for the rest of us in terms of our own personal privacy, that's fine, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's just the society saying what we think our norms are. Um, but are there more issues than that in terms of how we think about our privacy and how we're treated on social media? Yeah, I think that's a great question. To me, we're moving into a new era of social media. We've had this really happy, fun period of social media, and we're about to go into this second phase where all of these dots are going to be joined up and people, for the first time, are going to start seeing the second-order consequences of these huge data trails that they're leaving. And I think the most beautiful example of this is the two Russian agents that went to uh, the UK uh, to, con to assassinate... Uh, one of the former uh, Russian officials. And they don't have any social media presence, um, but, the way, but a, an independent open source unit was able to track down their exact names, their real names, uh, where they w grew up, uh, their grandmother, their mother, um, their, the house they lived in, what they studied, the people they flattered with, the awards they were given secretly by Vladimir Putin. And some of the key insights that they drew from that was actually from the social media accounts of people that they'd flattered with or gone to school with, and that gave them key clues to other parts of their lives and enabled, enabled them to stitch that together. We're seeing another extreme example of this with China's social credit scheme, 
where many people in the room might have seen the Four Corners documentary uh, where this sort of Orwellian system has been set up that allows the Chinese government to essentially rank everyday Chinese people on every single thing that they do. And that's going to impact their ability to, to travel, uh, which schools their children can attend, uh, their access to credit. And it's, a, it's sort of this monstrous system that they're going to be up against. That extends to um, not only your actions, but the actions of your loved ones and your, your relatives and how they, they behave, and to companies. So we've seen Qantas, for example, forced to call Taiwan a part of China. That was an early illustration of this type of scheme's application to companies. Now, you can sort of say, well, that's an authoritarian state. You know, it's very easy to critique a, a communist party. But what I don't think we think about is how we can have and will end up with westernised versions of these social credit schemes here in Australia. So we're just about to launch a, a digital identity here in Australia um, that will facilitate potentially this type of activity where you'll be able to um, you'll use it for every transaction, whether it's banking, accessing your social media, buying alcohol, entering pubs. And for the first time, all of these data points will be able to be linked with an individual identity with a high level of confidence. And that's going to enable companies, and companies are already starting to look at this in Australia, um, to be attribute vendors, where they might sell your Uber ranking, how much money you give to charity, um, what you sort of do on the weekend, what you buy, and they can sell it to companies who want to get a deeper profile of you. And that's where I think we really start to, to get into some serious issues. And that's a government program that was announced last year, the digital identity. It is. Right? Yeah. So, Vanessa Teague, you're an expert in, in cybersecurity. Surely we can trust the Australian government with our data, no? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, the reason I get invited to these panels is that my research group is the group that showed that both patients and doctors could be very easily re-identified in the giant data set of Medicare and PBS data that the Australian government published online two years ago. So this was 30 years' worth of billing records for 10% of Australians. If you're in the lucky 10%, then all of your Medicare and PBS records from 1984 to 2014 have already been published online. So put your hand up if you build something to Medicare or PBS between 1984 and 2014. Right? Put your keep your hand up if you've been appropriately notified by the responsible authority that your easily identifiable data was published on the web. <laughs> and there in a nutshell is the problem, I think. There's still a lack of understanding of the easy re-identifiability of this data and the seriousness of that data breach. And in the context of our discussions about secondary uses of my health record, the understanding of how bad that is really matters because if similar data is shared with a similar lack of understanding of the fact that de-identification of that kind of data really doesn't work, then we're going to see a repeat of the same kind of problem with very similar, highly sensitive data. One of the things that's in conversation now, and I think maybe you can see them on the screens, is um, the use of social media for messaging apps and the government or the AFP and ASIO is keen to force tech or encourage or force tech firms to open up the encryption behind that if they're going to track uh, terrorists and, and criminals. How do you feel about that? Again, I think it really matters whether they understand what they're doing and the evidence so far is that they don't. So I don't think anybody has a problem with a police officer with an appropriate warrant asking a social media company for information that they already have 
and I totally support that and support ways of making it easier for police officers to find out what data they need and access it from the companies. The controversy arises around whether the government should be able to demand that information that wouldn't normally have been available to the company, for example, if the keys were under the control of the ordinary users, should be made available by demanding that the company re-engineer their systems to facilitate that access. And the problem with that is that there might be a handful of terrorists using that, that um, software and another 26 million Australians who are also benefiting from the security guarantees of not making that information available to the company. So my concern with that is that the focus on law enforcement, which is the tiny minority of uses of secure devices and end-to-end encrypted services, can mean collateral damage for all the rest of us. Um, I'm going to jump in. <laughs> Vanessa and I have slightly different views on this. I think there is... I mean, I think we agree there is a legitimate uh, reason, and we, we sign up in this social contract with governments in democracies that uh, they can access our data under certain circumstances. For example, if there's a, a warrant in place and they want to get it. And there's been a long history of telecommunications providers, for example, providing um, transcripts, for example, of conversations under a warrant from the AFP, for example. Now, I think the, the, how far you go down the pathway of saying they have to re-engineer their systems, I think, is a, is a tricky one because you're basically saying, well, the, the telcos had to develop specific capability to be able to, to do that. Um, these companies could do the same thing. What's the sort of extent of that and what's the cost of it and what's the... I think the big question is what's the implications for other people and the vulnerabilities. But the other big issue I, I see with this bill is the international implications. So we, um, we're a democracy. We, we have a, a lot of trust in our government. But we haven't really thought about... We're being seen as a test case by a lot of these big companies and once we pass this bill, we're going to see a lot of other countries have copycat legislation. And what that's going to mean is you're going to have a lot of authoritarian states that say, well, we're going to do the same thing. And they might say, well, we want to do this, plus we want to have access to all of Australians, um, the Australian people's information as well. Now, it's, it's hard to make the case that they shouldn't be able to do that if we've done the same thing here in Australia. So I think that's an issue, and how we frame it up is an issue. So at the moment, we've said, well, we want this access because we're a democracy and this is our, our legitimate right. We haven't framed it in terms of principles. So I think we have a much better ability to be able to advocate um, for countries to restrict and restrain their access with these companies when they have similar legislation if we build the, the in, if we build the legislation based on principles. And that I think the core, key to that is the limitations on access and really carefully framing that up in principles that we can advocate uh, in international fora uh, to try and restrict uh, the flow on effects from this legislation. So we're getting concerned about the government then encroaching on our, our personal data and on our privacy, yet at the same time we're handing over all of that to corporations, right? Facebook has it, Google has it, Amazon has it. I mean, do we not care about privacy really at all? I mean, as long as it has some utility to us? I think there's evidence that people say they care about privacy in surveys but then when it actually comes to paying for privacy or clicking a button that ensures their privacy, they don't actually do it. So there's a lot of preference falsification about how important privacy really is to us. And we're so used to getting that um, instant gratification of what we want online that we don't stop and think about the long-term impact of giving away all of our data. I mean, I think you could do an interesting experiment in this room. If, I mean, how many people in this room have uh, Apple phones? If you could just put up your hand. 
So there's a really interesting trade-off, I think, between we're starting to see between, say, an Apple product where you pay a premium price and you have less, um, better security of your personal data versus an Android product, which is specifically designed with a view to harvesting your data to serve you up ads. So you get a free product in return for your data versus an Apple product where you get better privacy protections, but you pay a much higher price because it's the, the, the profit is made around the product. But I think that people are starting to see that they've been... So I think that's one dimension to this. But I think people have been sold one thing and they're starting to realise they've got another thing. So the compact you made with free products was that you would hand over a bit of your data, what you like, what you buy, and you'd get the convenience of the free product and ads that are related to that. So you, you Google London, you get hotels in London. It's, it's convenient. But what people I did think didn't sign up for was having that data harvested by third parties like Cambridge Analytica or, um, in the case of the Russian agents, the um, Bellingcat, uh, looking into their identities. And all of these other data points are now starting to be meshed together in ways that we didn't really anticipate and in ways that could be quite detrimental to our future careers, um, all, all kinds of things that we didn't really think about. So has it been a gateway drug to us getting rid of our privacy, really, the, the joys of being on social media, the sugar hit you get from having a conversation where you get 100 likes makes us think, great, I'm happy to be out there, and now, you know, it's fine. Well, there is a growing tech clash. So after Cambridge Analytica, there's been, particularly in the United States, there's been a, a widespread um, growing dislike of the brand Facebook. And uh, it's actually quite a hated brand now in many places, and something like... 40% of young people have switched off or deactivated or stopped using their Facebook account. So I think technology brands have to, going into the future, they have to be very careful about privacy and, and, and to not have these breaches which lose the trust of their consumers. Um, yeah. Vanessa? Do you trust the corporations with your, with your data? I'm sure you don't. But... Um... <laughs> Is it, is, it, is, it, is it that bad? I mean, there are, there are companies out there that spend their entire time harvesting data. Uh, so we are the product in the end. Is that, is that a huge problem, would you say? Yes, I think that's a huge problem. I think, I think the extent to which a tiny amount of power is concentrated in a... Sorry, a large amount of power is concentrated in a very small number of hands probably isn't fully appreciated. If you think about Twitter, not only in the sense of the privacy invasion, but in the sense of the control of what you get to see. Uh, there, somebody is running an algorithm that decides what comes up on your feed and what doesn't, similarly with Facebook or even Google for that matter. The assumption that those algorithms are in some sense objective or are showing you some kind of honest reflection of the world is just not valid. They're showing you a particular implementation of some particular decision, um, which might reflect what the truth is in some kind of objective sense or might reflect what meets the economic or political goals of the people designing the algorithm or running the platform. I think that's very scary. And Fergus, you've come back from Taiwan just recently where you've been, they've been talking about social media as a platform being used by the Chinese government to influence Taiwanese citizens. Um, we saw it in terms of the fake news with regards to uh, the US election and, and, and Russians, um, agents possibly as well. I mean, are we kind of being duped into the fact that we have some sort of free will in what we think, but it's a lot of fake news out there? Yeah, I think this, this, this phase of information warfare that we're going into is just going to become bigger and bigger issue and a bigger and bigger problem for us to grapple with. 
in Taiwan, they're really at the coalface of this battle with China uh, in this information environment. And a lot of what we've seen there is is sort of similar to the Russian experience, a lot of misinformation, a lot of uh, attempts to try and manipulate uh, public opinion. Um, there's been a couple of interesting adaptations. Uh, one is the sort of use of people on the ground as well to cultivate for example, youth gangs into forming these groups, um, paying them to form sort of uh, grassroots movements that will mobilise against the, uh, the incumbent president, which China does not like. Um, another really interesting and sort of quirky one is this attempt to what seems to be clog up and jam up the proper functioning of government. So you saw misinformation campaigns, for example, that there was going to be a toilet, short, uh, toilet paper shortage in Taiwan. And that sparked panic where everybody went out and suddenly bought toilet paper and sparked a self-fulfilling prophecy where they did actually run out of toilet paper. And that sort of requires a government to go into suddenly this sort of thing that it's not prepared for and takes days to rectify. Um, And then they did another one where they said, oh, there's going to be a banana glut. And suddenly all these bananas are going to be destroyed and it's going to cause this huge food waste scandal. And then that took days for the government to then, you know, rectify that. But the whole, meanwhile, no, none of the proper functioning of government's going on. They're just responding to scandals. And um, I think, I guess part of that is sort of making the most of the, of the partisanship that maybe is turning up in social media, right? You can feed a certain group of people, tell them that something terrible is going on, and that spreads virally. Certainly in the US, that's the argument that was made about the US election. Uh, Claire, do you think one of the problems with social media in terms of how it works is that we are all stuck in a sort of filter bubble of our own audiences. And and what does that mean for for society in terms of its development? Yes, we're all in echo chambers online and filter bubbles. And uh, I think the implications for democracy long-term are very worrying. But what I find interesting is the, the fact that most people still remain fairly politically moderate However, when you go into echo chambers, they're quite dominated by noisy um, ideologues with unshakable beliefs. And so I think the social media environment gives an, uh, it sets up a dynamic where those who have the most extreme views can dominate their peer group and those with more nuanced, ambivalent or moderate views uh, start to self-censor uh, speak less because they don't want to be sh- uh, shamed or stigmatised by their friends and so on. So I think we have to be wary. Not we, uh, the extremism and the echo chambers that we see online is very concerning, but we also have to n- be careful not to generalise and um, forget that the bulk of the population, both in Australia and the United States and elsewhere, is quite moderate. But they just not, might not be expressing themselves. Right. Well, on that note, I think we'll end it there. This is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. Yeah, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. That was a fairly interesting conversation, I thought, about uh, um, social media that was held uh, before drinks last uh, night at the uh, Outlook conference. Uh, the, um, the issues that they're talking about, uh, I was just saying to uh, that it's a great segue to the next conversation that we wanted to have, which was 
uh, quite an amazing piece of uh, investigative work done by uh, a group that uh, tags, uh, White Rose Society, that tags uh, the progress of... uh, uh, the movements of fascists within the Australian community. Quite amazing. Uh, in fact, the, they say that the Right Rose Society is named after a German student resistance movement which existed during uh, World War Two. Its members are dedicated to exposing and opposing fascists by any means necessary. And uh, the thing that they've... Uh, found out, which is actually quite concerning, is that uh, Metropolitan Region Chair of the New South Wales Young Nationals, Clifford Jennings, was revealed as a key figure in an extreme right-wing fascist movement. Uh, Jennings, who self-identifies as an ethno-nationalist, other people might call it white supremacist, uh, and fascist, was elected in May following a coordinated stacking of the New South Wales Young Nationals Conference, which is fascinating because we've been talking about how the uh, the fascist uh, rise within the Australian community, the right, ultra-right infiltration of our political voice, is uh, moving across the line into... Uh, the uh, mainstream politic. Your views, what are you thinking, you guys? It's pretty terrifying. Yeah, I think it's terrifying. Mm. Yeah, I think it's terrifying too. Um, uh, It goes on to talk about how... um, Jennings, when explaining his beliefs, this is—they're not taking, uh, uh, putting words into his mouth. This this man actually has said quite categorically where he stands in terms of the politic. Jennings, when explaining his beliefs in an online discussion in 2017, said, "I view fascism as being in the interest of my blood. It's probably better just to call me a nationalist." All I care about is the 14 words. Now, if you're not initiated, uh, what are the 14 words? Uh, This is a reference to the 14 words creed coined by a convicted US white supremacist terrorist, David Lane. We must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. This forms part of the common neo-Nazi numerical symbol 14-88, which ref- represents the 14 words, Lane's ethno-nationalist treatise, 88 precepts, and the phrase, the phrase Heil Hitler, H being the eighth letter of the alphabet. Very complicated stuff. You obviously have to create mm. um, sort of a mystical, sort of almost pseudo-religious uh, iconography in order to uh, establish your... Uh, uh, Rituals, effectively, Mm. around this notion. Jennings credits himself as a founding father of the ultra-right in Australia and is intimately involved with the Dingoes, an ultra-right online media outlet whose podcasts have featured mainstream political figures including Mark Latham and George Christensen. In 2017, he organised a private ultra-right conference, DingoCon, which was to feature American neo-Nazi podcaster Mike Enoch. And the White Rose Society 
uh, puts forward the notion that the significance of this neo-Nazi infiltration of a mainstream political party, that is the New South Wales Young Nationals, should not be underestimated. This is a planned and coordinated attempt by a group of white supremacists to move from the fringes of social media to political influence in Canberra. So all the things that have been said about why you should stand up and fight back um, by CAF and others and the various uh, rallies that have been happening around the place around people like Nigel Farage being invited to uh, do uh, from UKIP in uh, England uh, doing uh, speaking tours. Uh, this isn't fanciful stuff. This is a well-coordinated effort. Now, these people uh, got this man, Jennings, into the young New South Wales Young Nationals by stacking the, uh, the vote, basically. So it was a coordinated effort. So watch this space. Apparently, um, uh, Monday Breakfast is going to have a, a more extended view of what's going on there so be afraid be very afraid you're on uh, so, uh, solidarity breakfast with annie fiona and tilly um we'll have another message then we'll move on to uh a more sunny pastures uh looking at uh our exhibition from um her place which is a very nice development <laughs> Friends of the Earth's Walk This Way is back. Join us on Saturday, October 13th on a sponsored walk of Melbourne's beautiful Bayside Tracks to launch our new waste and consumption campaign and take action on climate change. Together, we'll walk 15 kilometres and raise $20,000 for Friends of the Earth. We will be highlighting key issues around climate resilience, rising sea levels and plastic pollution in our oceans. Getting involved is simple. Sign up online at walkthisway.org.au Get sponsored, spread the word, and get walking. Join us as we journey through coastal communities who are most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. We'll finish up with a community picnic in the Katani Gardens in St Kilda. Friends of the Earth is a proud supporter of CCR. Well, thank you very much for... Uh, giving me some time. Uh, yeah, it's, very, it's very interesting, uh, the uh, exhibition that you've put together. Can you explain to the listeners about how uh, the uh, exhibition came about? Yeah, so this is one of many exhibitions that we've done at Her Place Museum, but this is a series of three that we're doing in some regional areas. So we've got this particular exhibition at Moorwall and then a variation of it will move on to Pakenham and Ballarat. So in each of the exhibitions we feature um, 10 interviews with women who've um, contributed in some way to either the fields that they work in or the work that they have contributed to in a community sort of environment and um, we usually do interviews uh, with some local women, but also um, source the interviews from our pool of interviews that we have as part of our Her Place Museum. Can you g- give our listeners an understanding of Her Place 
Women's Museum Australia because it's yeah. a, it's it's about putting women back into the history, isn't it? That's right. So it's about sort of featuring um, women uh, that well, women's histories that haven't really been acknowledged in terms of uh, the historical narratives of this country, and um, it celebrates their achievements and um, how they've contributed in terms of shaping um, Australia and, um, yeah, I guess public life and um, community. Yeah, so it started in around 2014 um, from a group of women who sort of um, built on um, that idea of uh, gender equity and the Victorian honour roll of women and wanted to create a permanent sort of space for women's histories. And I guess that's the the ultimate strategy, is to um, create a women's museum. And, and bricks and mortar. Yeah, so bricks and mortar, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, because we have a lot of uh, uh, bronze statues of men around the place. Yes, there are a lot. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and people yeah. would be forgiven for thinking that if you're going to put public money into statues to commemorate uh, important people, that uh, actually equity starts there. That's right. And I think in terms of, you know, women's histories and similarly also with, um, you know, the histories of a whole range of underrepresented communities in um in terms of from the perspective of history, um, you know, their stories often haven't been told. So that's the starting point of it as well. And so there's some actually very interesting elements to this particular exhibition. Uh, one, its first uh, space was down in Morwell. So you're actually targeting the conception that rural women have a part to play and they should stop uh, being seen as really just the helpmates. Yeah, that's right. So um, the exhibition in Morwell features um, a range of women who um, are from a real diverse uh, range of backgrounds as well. But we have farmers in there, um, farmers who are also poultry farmers who are you know, significant members of the CFA, um, a new interview we did with, with Sally Jones, who's a real leader in the dairy industry um, and a mental health advocate in terms of her background. And then we've got um, writers and um, ex-politicians and community advocates, uh, Indigenous elders. So, yeah, there's an incredible range of um, women that, you know, can really appeal to um, a diverse audience, both uh, across um, intergenerational uh, audience as well. So one of the people is Joan Kerner, of course, Victoria's yes. first premier, uh, yes. female premier, and uh, some people like uh, Halima Mohammed, Somali community leader. As yes. w- yeah, which is a very interesting choice. Yes, that's right. So, um, you know, down at the opening at... Um, more um, well the other night there was a local woman there um, who had done some community projects with Halima and so was really uh, intrigued and interested to, to hear her talk more about her own life within the video. So that's really appealing that you can sort of, um, you know, provide an opportunity also to um, enable women to feel connected 
to either women that inspire them or, or women that um, they might have come across in their work as well. So at the opening, what, what were some of the uh, uh, expressions of interest at the opening? I think what was really nice was that we had um, the two women that we featured were, that was um, some new interviews that we did with women from the Gippsland area was Auntie Bess Yaram and Sally Jones and also um, Alma Thorpe who is a woman that we've featured before, an Indigenous elder who was quite involved in setting up the Fitzroy Health Indigenous Health Service in Gertrude Street in the 70s. Um, she's from down that way as well and has still got a lot of family down there. So her and Arnie Bess knew each other and had worked together previously and so they were both there at the opening. So it was a great sort of moment for them to connect and um, to also just sort of share their stories more with their family and other members of the community that had come to the opening. So that was really lovely. And Sally also had uh, connections there in terms of um, a lot of the people who were aware of her work as well in terms of uh, really provide, because that's such a rich dairy industry down there in Gippsland. And, you know, the dairy industry got done over a bit a few years back. And so Sally used that as her impetus to... um, really provide an opportunity where uh, the dairy industry, she created a company that was able to actually give back more so to that industry and provide better uh, remuneration for farmers. So actually it's not just commemorating uh, and doffing a hat to the work of these women uh, and uh, to see them as uh, special people in a sense, but also they take the opportunity to actually describe the communities that they come from. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, and uh, like Sally Jones, for example, in her story, you know, she... uh, You know, she grew up on a dairy farm and, you know, but what became evident with um, her own personal family story with her father was, you know, uh, the issues facing a lot of um, farmers in terms of mental health and those sort of issues. And so she has been able to bring that to the fore of um, her work as well. So that's a really important um, part of what she does. And... um, and then Arnie Bess Yarram is still an active. She's, you know, just turned 80 and she is an incredible inspiration in terms of all the uh, volunteer work that she does with some of the Aboriginal organisations in Gippsland and also with the correctional centres out there um, as a respected elder within that space as well. Uh, and the exhibition's going to uh, show up in Melbourne shortly, isn't it? going to Pakenham and then it'll head off to Ballarat as well, yeah. Yeah, now can you give us sort of a framework of uh, what a person would expect when they go to the exhibition? Yeah, so we um, have the, we usually feature 10 interviews um, as part of the exhibition uh, and they are playing on on screens. Um, There are each of the interviews we've sort of edited down to about five minutes, which is a really hard thing to do. And then um, as part of that uh, space as well, we often loan items from the personal collection of the women that we feature and we display those in cases um, alongside their videos. And um, they just might be personal mementos that tell 
a little bit of story about their own life, some um, photographs, uh, you know, things like that. So that's part of the exhibition as well. How, how did it get financed and uh, who did the work? Who made... Did, you're the curator. Were you the creator of the videos or...? No, we work with... Um, We've worked with various sort of small film production companies to generate the interviews, and um, we work with the women uh, to uh, create a story around the items that they give us for exhibition. And um, so there's a, a bit a small team um, that we have, and we're um, also supported by um, a board of women that. Um, you know, keep the organisation sort of moving along towards ultimately um, being able to have a designated space. So the funding comes from donations and supporters and we get project funding from the Victorian government as well. And in the instance of these three exhibitions, we've um, been able to get the support of the local councils where we're holding the exhibition in terms of providing us with a venue. So everyone sort of chips in, really. Uh, were the women themselves, how did you get the list? How did that uh, come about? Yeah, so that's... Uh, it's often we, um, as a starting point for when um, a lot of the stories first um, were initiated a few years back, the Victorian Women's Honour Roll um, was a point of reference. So a lot of the women that we feature in our stories have been honoured in that role. And then a lot of other um, women, are, we might talk to people in community and they might suggest um, some women and so we look down that path as well. And every exhibition that we have, we put a big board up for um, people to contribute who they think should be represented in a, in a museum space like that, whose stories should we... Uh, try and collect. Were the women themselves surprised? Um, sometimes, yeah. So sometimes and, and um, yeah, some of them not used to talking so much about themselves so much. And so, um, but, you know, very, very honoured as well, many of them, because, you know, they looked at who some of the women had been represented previously and felt happy to be part of, you know, that group of women. So, um, and, you know, and there's some women that we feature that are, we always ask, you know, the women when we interview them, you know, are there some women that you have felt inspired by? Um, and more often than not, you know, Joan Kerner does come up quite a bit in terms of um, an inspiration for a lot of women in the community. It's interesting, isn't it? Because having public recognition is a very important step in uh, people uh, recognising the worth of other people, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, you know, we're in an age now where it, it is fairly easy for us to document or do interviews with, with people. And so, you know, as, you know, people age and get elderly, you know, we need to be... Um, uh, conscious of that and make every effort we can to, to get those stories down. How did you get involved in it? Um, I sort of work in that sort of curatorial space 
um, particularly around um, social history and um, how best to also represent stories and, and histories within a gallery or a museum setting. And so um, oh, this is one of my first exhibitions that I've done with her place. So I've sort of worked previously at um, a few other institutions and independently, and so this was another little opportunity that came my way. Well, um, congratulations. It's a, a great uh, opportunity for people to uh, involve themselves in um, making history. Yeah, and look, um, we feature little grabs of all our interviews and the biographies um, on our website. So if, if people are interested, they can pop along there and have a bit of a look. Okay, and so that yeah. would be uh, uh, Her Place? Her Place Museum. Okay. Yeah. Thanks very much for this. <laughs> Her Place Museum, something. Yeah. Thanks. Her Place Museum, Australia, yeah. Mm. And if they're not going to be at Pakenham or at uh, in Stall Street, Ballarat, uh, then they can go online. That's right, and I'm sure we'll have another exhibition coming up in Melbourne pretty soon. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks a lot. See you later. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. A weak solidarity Bricky team listener when this international panel on climate change report concluded we had to move urgently to a fossil free energy world if we are to avoid the inevitable consequences of our fossil non-free energy world like the total destruction of the, of the barrier reef along with the rest of the planet but our fossils declared well let's hear them uh, this international uh, whatever Big Supremo scuttled in Morlesh son asked his favourite probing shock jock interviewer, Alan Court in the Johns. Uh, what are their credentials to make these statements? Scuttle them, they are scientists who base their ludicrously ridiculous assumptions on science. <laughs> so, so what would they know? <laughs> At this, they had a big, big laugh, and Scuttle them told Alan, and this is a direct quote, the report does not provide recommendations to True Blue Aussie or True Blue Aussie's program, but rather is dealing with the global program. Indicating Scuttle them knows True Blue Aussie is not part of global. Well, we do follow the US of the UN of the US of the world in everything, so that could explain that. And we did think the Barrier Reef had something to do with True Blue Aussie, but apparently not. Not that we should worry anyway, because Scuttlem also reiterated his recorded message that True Blue Aussie will meet its Paris commitment in a canter. So given his horsey analogy, perhaps he could flash his climate change policy. Well, let's qualify that if there is such a thing as climate change. Climate change policy on the Sydney Opera House. Although, uh, unless it was blown up about a trillion times, we, we wouldn't be able to see it. And, and to prove how basing these scare tactics on silent science is clearly unscientific, the great international coal behemoths operating in and out of Trublawazi base their knowledge on the International Energy Profits Agency, which says they can safely keep increasing their coal exports around the globe, to which Trublawazi does not belong. And on that international panel report, readers of the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin were saved from being petrified at these warnings by the caring editorial staff.
and the only mention of the report turned up back in the finance pages with an extremely objective and thoughtful column by Lord Rupert's economic guru Terry Pukan who described the report as scaremongering blackmail, direct quote, deployed by the IPCC climate hysterics of the grubby coalition of theological climate extremists and greedy money-chasing renewable energy rent-seekers, carpet-baggers and main chances all. Told you it was objective and thoughtful, well profound. Design, Terry raved on, to send energy prices through the roof or into the CO2 atmosphere or something, showing Terry shares Lord Rupert's concern for the common person. Given that, with fossil energy costs are so, so low, thanks to the great fossil power companies whose greatest concern is keeping prices low. Unlike when those coal behemoths. Uh, unlike, sorry, when those, these utilities were in the bloated, inefficient hand of the public sector. One of those coal behemoths, Glen Care for the Environment, has been forced to take the Trouble Aussie Tax Department to the High Court over the grossly unjust retention of papers, which just may indicate how Glen Care for the Environment also cares about meeting its legal tax obligations. As all of these great, good corporate citizens assure us, they meet all their legal tax obligations. In this case, that Paradise Papers leak, which suggested some of the legal tax obligations were balanced by a few illegal tax circumvent obligations. Poor Glenn Care for the Environment claiming legal privilege over papers involving a Mabudan law firm, which seemed to pick up a hell of a lot of work from the great corporates. In other words, asking the High Court to make sure the tax office can't use the evidence. Not that we'd suggest there is anything in the evidence it wants suppressed, given it clearly meets its legal tax obligations. And the irresponsible threats get even worse, because the tax office is also looking at whether it can circumvent legal privilege by investigating advice given by the big, big four international accounting corporations allowing their clients to meet their legal tax obligations. Another example of the tax department poking its nose where it doesn't belong, making the great corporations feel a little less legally privileged than they have been feeling. Tax. Interviewed on AM Thursday, Scuttle then was in full flight, eulogising the giant benefits to all of us of slashing taxes on small and medium-sized business, as he calls them, interspersing his wisdom with some brilliant reposts at the socialists, leaving the nation in stitches with, the socialist five-point plan is tax, 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 tax and tax. Another inspired witticisms, but then the interviewer had the audacity to ask, when will the giant benefits lead to higher wages? Leaving a spluttering scuttle then talking about the importance of small and medium business, the very heart of our economy, and they would invest and reinvest, and, and on he went about what they'd do with their government windfall other than answer the actual question, giving the surely false impression that he didn't have a clue. And we'd never suggest he didn't care, for whenever wages do go up, well, ever so slightly, as in the annual lowest of low wages case, or evil unions suggest they should go up, Scuttlebeam expresses his concern, along with the caring employers, that the country simply can't afford this inflationary pay rise that will cost jobs, because their hearts go out to the unemployed.
So as he sputtered on, and it was obvious there was no chance of an answer, the interviewer took him to a different matter. Remember when then big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull, with his usual show of courage, caved into the love thy neighbour, dear baby Jesus mob, post the marriage equality plebiscite, and appointed former minister for concentration camps, razor wire and sink the boats, Philip Rubbish, to protect their rights to love thy neighbour, uh, as long as thy neighbour was not of the same sex. And now we learn the government has been sitting on Philip's rubbish for five months. Perhaps we need to ask why. But amid reports, the report recommends allowing good love thy neighbour schools not to love the wrong sort of neighbour. Scuttle them did a Her Most Gracious Majesty's Queen Victoria impersonation in the interview trying to explain all this. Uh, homosexuals, uh, lesbians or, uh, uh, or uh, any other descriptions. Yes, poor old Scuttleman couldn't bring himself to say the sinful, heretical words. Although, let's be fair, he did go one better than Her Majesty and managed to say lesbian. One of the warm, caring, love thy neighbour mob whose religious freedoms need protecting, Erica Betts on the bosses, was so incensed at the attacks on religious freedoms, he threw himself into international affairs by declaring those who had opposed and um, alleged false, false, false allegations at that great believer in the dear baby Jesus, now US of Supreme Court Justice Brute, uh, Brute? Uh, sorry, sorry, Brett, Cab, no, I didn't, will have to live with their consciences for the rest of their lives. Because obviously, from his baddies point in Tasmania, Eric knows Brett didn't, and therefore knows the accusers and the corroborators of Brett's student behaviour were sinful liars bound for the fires of hell. Also confirming our knowledge that Love Thy Neighbour Eric has such great respect for gender equality for women. If anything did happen, it would have happened because this provocative, or more correctly, uh, these provocative Jezebels wore inappropriate skimpy outfits asking for what they got, uh, which they didn't get, outfits that are an insult uh, to the dear baby Jesus. Someone wiser than me might like to explain why Eric thought it necessary to get into the issue at all, other than to provide another little gift for satire, but back to scuttle them's tax cuts. No gift, but can't we look forward to unflinching commitment to socialism if Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Little Billy Shorten Ambition makes it to Big Supremo? This time Thursday, he firmly committed the socialists to opposing the tax cuts. Before the media suggested, that policy could cause a fair bit of trouble with the caring business class. So by early afternoon, he firmly committed the socialists to having no position at all. Now we will need to look at the figures. And this is before he's even elected. At this rate, he could make Malcolm look like the epitome of firm resolve and unequivocal principle. Displaying those qualities, an advisor informed, informed a U.S. of big supremo Donald Trample the poor that a dissenter had been murdered in an embassy in Turkey. This is a disgrace, an attack on all of us, the biggest attack ever. Evil, evil Iran will not get away with this. It will feel the full power of uh, Mr. Supremo, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's our close friend Saudi. As I was saying, clearly we will need proof. We will need more information. Saudi loves democracy like me.
Which brings us to the tragic departure from the UN of the US of the UN of the world of Nikki, hail to the good guys, hell to the bad guys. Won't she be missed? Someone said she'd been keeping Donald in check. The mind boggles at what she might have come up with if she hadn't. And as France is sued in the world court for the death and disease and destruction from its nuclear tests in the Pacific, it said it denied responsibility for the deaths and disease due to its testing. Again, leaving us to ask, well, who was? Presumably the victims for just being there. Ditto, and finally, the great responsible bankers have been appearing before a parliamentary committee. Remember, this was the way to bring them into line without the need for a totally unnecessary Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission. And due to the latter, they were forced to make their predictable grovelling apologies with which bank, which used to be our bank, Supremo Matt Cummins practice, explaining the reasons for the rip-offs, concluding with, and in some instances, greed. You could help us here, Matt. Could you tell us which instances were not greed? Good morning. Good morning. Welcome back to 3CR Solidarity Breakfast. Um, in the studio, we have Annie and Tilly. And on the line, we're have, going to have a chat with Steve Jolly. Good morning, Steve. Good morning. Now, um, we're very excited about your about the about your campaign to be the first socialist candidate in the uh, Victorian Senate in the upcoming state election. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the the inception of this campaign, please? Yeah, it's sort of a coalition came together of kind of existing left-wing groups. And we've had support from some unions, resident associations, public housing associations, individuals, um, to come and test the water to see if there's an interest I've taken the success of socialists at a local level in Melbourne, at Moreland, with Sue Bolton and me, with at Yarra, to the next level, to the state parliament, to see if we've got any sort of hint here in Australia of what happened in America around the Sanders campaign, the Corbett campaign in Britain. Um, and to do that, we need to unite and we need to, um, you know, have a crack at probably the easiest place to get into the, upper, into the um, state parliament, which is at the upper house in northern metropolitan region, which makes up, I guess, the northern suburbs of Melbourne about half a million voters. Now, there's been this uh, belief that uh, the north, like you say, it's a, it's a potentially uh, a, it, it's winnable. It's winnable for the socialists, despite what the uh, conservative media like to say that uh, you know, uh, not in a pink fit. But um, a lot of the times, people in the northern metropolitan, and a lot of them are Labor voters over time. Uh, is that a lot of there's a lot of issues, aren't there, for people in the northern metropolitan regions? Yeah, there are a lot of Labour voters, especially in the northern half of the northern region. And um, in the northeast, you've got um, a lot of people working, construction, people have bought houses, new estates, but they're totally underserviced by public transport. So they're spending hours on the road or even in trains, like packed like sardines, to get to and fro from work. The northwest of the region, up around the Broadmeadows, Roxbury Park area, it's an industrial wasteland with the highest unemployment rate in Victoria. Um, and there's just a lack of jobs, and it's the closest you're going to see to some of the badlands of the United States. Um, and in both of those areas, the Labour Party's gone AWOL. They've relied on Labour voters to vote them in, like a one-party state on the council, state and federal. And they've just taken advantage of it, and they've just walked away. They do nothing for the local area. They just take the area for granted. In the inner city, where... It's more of a marginal seat situation. The Labor Party um, 
are handing out largesse and you know promising they're going to do this and that and the other. And in some cases, they are. Um, but the people in the north who have been the most loyal to them have been treated really badly. And we've come in and uh, made some hay there, and we've just campaigning really hard on on public transport issues, on the lack of housing affordability, with policies that we um, that we think are achievable, but also with strict campaigning um, to get these issues on the political agenda. So Tell it, uh, yeah, sorry. So, what is your public transport policy and infrastructure infrastructure policy in that region? Well, I mean, in the north um, east of the seat, uh, we need to extend the tram line, the eighty six tram line, for example, from Aramite from them. Um, Aramachi Bandura, north up to South Morang. We've actually got a rally at 1 o'clock this coming Tuesday with locals to push that really hard. We want the train line extended up to Crazy Burn. We want um, signal to signal train signal, uh, a signal to signal train, um, a train to train signaling system which will very quickly fast track the train system in, in all parts of Victoria, actually. And um, in the north west of the region, we've also got policies to extend train lines to duplicate the upfield line. Um, extended as well to one and um, um, policies that have come out of community movements and community organisations uh, everyone agrees need to be done because you've got in some areas the staff is growing part of Australia and um, the new state 16,000 people you know, a, a year moving into some of these areas um, but the Labour Party at best is playing catch up um, and waiting until they've got absolutely no choice but to build an extension of train and tram lines and we want them to do it, be ahead of the pack and, and um, have a, um, an expansion of public transport to create lots of jobs and it's much better for the environment. It's one of the um, key elements of uh, socialist approach, isn't it, to actually discuss what are the issues for the local people and to activate the local people behind those issues. Is that something that uh, is marking the difference between your campaign and any other pol- politicians in the area? Well, yeah, I mean, we used to position not just advocate, but to mobilise. We've had 30, 40 years of capitalist parties. The Green Party, the Labour Party, the Liberal Party, um, all tried at best, well, the Liberal Party just stands for uh, undiluted capitalism, but with the Labour Party and the Green Party, it's to make capitalism a bit nicer. No one's got any systematic um, challenge to the, uh, to, the, to the system that we live under. And um, as a consequence, politics in Australia has shifted to the right at a a massive degree. And now there's the pushback. Even the Labour Party have had to sort of acknowledge that with shortened, half-arsed attempts to, um, you know, talk about need to tax the rich and spend more money on public schools and so on. But there's a general mood that we see it in America and Europe um, to the far right and also to the far left of people just getting fed up of the what what Tarek Ali calls the extreme centre. And we (laughs) represent that here in Australia. Um, and um, and that's why this campaign has just, you know, had massive support from unions and you know, famous people, but more importantly, on the ground amongst ordinary people. We've got 11 branches, 1,500 members, and massive campaigning. We totally out-campaigned our opponents by way of postering and door-knocking and letterboxing. We haven't even started yet. We're going to have an army of people in November <laughs> at the pre-polls and on election day, and we're, um, we're going to go really, really hard to try and, I've been pretty impressed with the uh, social media um, presence as well. You've got, like you said, you've got a couple of famous people who are sitting there spruiking for you. Yeah. Tell us about it. Well, well 
we had Chomsky's come out in support for us, you know, Helen Razor. We've had um, Tarek Ali still to come, Kareem Grant. You know, we've got a lot of people like that um, who um, have come on board. It's very good, um, very humbling. But the, much more important than any of those people are the, um, the mums and dads, public housing tenants, the school students, the uni students, the workers who have come on board and um, in their spare time have been out door knocking letterboxing sticking up posters, stamping stalls at railway stations, shopping centres and so on, and we've turned into the biggest left-wing campaign, left-wing electoral campaign this country has seen since, well, God knows when. And uh, tell us about the reactions from the people on the ground when you talk with them. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, some people aren't interested, you know, um, some people are loyal, um, you know, have drawn the conclusion that, uh, you know, of, of, of a racist or right-wing conclusion, and then there's other people who are loyal to the major parties. But what we're, there are also a lot of people who are open up, open to our ideas. They've seen the work that I've done on council in the area for 14 years, the two bombings done for six years at Morning Council. It's not just a matter of theory. Um, we've led the charge against dodgy development and for public housing tenants and for the underdog in the inner city for you know a long time now. So they've seen that. They want to take it to the next level. They like our policies. They're excited by the campaign. They want to do in Australia what's happening in other countries of the world, which is rebuild the social movement on a mass scale. They impressed that these left groups have come together, all different types of individuals have come together and haven't beaten each other up, and they want to be part of the action. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely not a flag-flying exercise where we're going hard to win on November 24th. What, what's the, um, the, the party's position on racism and um, social cohesion? What, do you have any particular policies on that? We oppose racism. We've led and organised most of the uh, anti-racist, anti-Islamophobic rallies over the past period. But unlike the Greens and the Labour Party and the bourgeois anti-racism that you see in the likes of FIFA and World Soccer and some of the companies like Telstra and something like that, we, we don't isolate a rise in racism from social conditions on the ground. It's not, you know, if, if you slash and burn infrastructure and jobs, you're going to create the conditions for racism. So you can't just walk into a community and say, oh, you need to love each other, racism is really bad, it's nonsense. So we link the fight against racism to the fight for jobs, for better housing, um, and that, that's, the, that's the only one. And, and through the struggle for that, you bring people together. If you just have a, a shallow, fake, hollow anti-racism, um, it doesn't cover the working-class communities that have been devastated. If you don't offer a socialist alternative on the left, people will look for racist explanations mm. in the situation they've got themselves in. So our anti-racism is much more rooted in, in the, the need for, also the need for, you know, for, for, to shift away from the policies of the last 30 years of greed, greed is good. Um, that's the only way to, in the long term to fight against racism. It's very easy to be anti-racist when you're sipping lattes on Brunswick Street and you've got heaps of money. Um, uh, but when you're out in the working class area, you've got no jobs, and your kids have got no jobs, you can't afford the rent, and you've got no chance to buy a house. And the Labour Party and the Greens are part of that, as is the Liberal Party. Um, well, then you're going to turn around and you're going to blame somebody, you know, and mm. racist ideas are, are going to get an echo. So you have to link racism to the, the, the politics of, um, of the anti-capitalism. Now, um, th- that is the thorny issue, because out in uh, places like Broadmeadows and uh, places like that, lots of factories have uh, closed down, manufacturing closed down. It's got a very, very high uh, unemployment rate. And a lot of the people who are unemployed in the past actually commanded reasonable incomes. What is the plan? What are you thinking? Well, up in the broad area, one of the plans that we've got 
is um, in the old Ford plant, which is obviously closed down, part of the deindustrialization of that area. We want to uh, turn it into a recycling hub. China, not so long ago, last year, stopped taking all our recycling. Most councils now, um, whether you know about it or whether you don't know about it, but most time you you, know, you, you recycle, it just goes straight to landfill. It's an absolute waste, literally a waste of time um, to, to recycle in most um, municipal areas. And there's no plan whatsoever. We can no longer put our waste on it, literally a slow boat to China, um, in a colonial attitude like we used to do. They're not taking it anymore because we, we mixed all the recycling um, and it just wasn't working. So what we need to do now is have Victorian recycle plants, publicly owned, in an area of high employment, of great need. And we're proposing that we, one place that we have one is uh, Ford plants, which create thousands of jobs in construction. Post-construction will be magnificent for the environment. It could be a recycle hub, an indoor high-tech recycle hub, with loads of apprentices, loads of... Um, skilled workers and, and, and people in between, semi-skilled, low-entry uh, jobs. Um, it's something that Victoria is desperately in need of. Um, and that's one of our short-term plans for, for job creation in the northwest of this seat. The obvious question is that, uh, and it's great, uh, that you've put your hat in the ring. Uh, people want an alternative, and uh, an alternative to uh, crippling... Uh, uh, system, basically, um, that we all live under, and alternatives uh, light uh, are, um, shine a light on of on other ways of doing things. But uh, it's an unusual thing for a socialist to one you've uh, had runs on the boards as a councillor. Uh, you're now moving to uh, trying to get into the Senate. One voice in the wilderness or uh, a, um, an infection that's going to take it over? Well, I mean, we'll have to see. Maybe it is one voice in the wilderness and it gets crushed. There are a lot of very powerful enemies, so I'd be totally bullshitting your listeners if I said it was all laid out the there that we were going to go from strength to strength in a non-interrupted way. But what we're aiming to do is to crack the ceiling, to use that position to create massive interest nationally um, if a socialist got elected to the Victorian state election in, um, in November to build a new left party uh, nationwide to use that position to advocate for socialist ideas, socialist explanations and socialist answers to the problems of the day. But more important than any of that would be to do what I've done in Yarrow, was that to turn the position into a stronghold for the left by street meetings in every single suburb of the seat on a regular basis, um, uh, Storms in every single part of the city on a regular basis. Leaflets going out every six months to every constituent so that every time, everything from a picket line to a bunch of people pissed off that the local council's closing their childcare centre to whatever it might be, that we're in their building showing them how to organise, showing them how to mobilise. So the northern suburbs becomes a bastion of resistance with the 1%, and we, we spread and strengthen socialist uh, support in the region um, and obviously spread that statewide and nationally um, as what. You know, for example, the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, are doing in the States right now, fastest growing group, left wing group on the planet. So that's what we want to do. Um, this is just the start. Oh, Steve, what is it? Making politicians earn their living? Well, yeah, I mean, often, you know, especially in the upper house, you know, you, you elect somebody and you don't see them until, if you're lucky, until four years later. Um, and they just, cut, cut, you know, get their $170,000 a year, plus very generous expenses and staffing expenditure and all the rest of it, and that's the end of it. And all they do is, you know, vote 
like Robotons for whatever party um, chief of staff tells them to vote for, I'm going to only live on the average wage of the skilled worker. We're going to donate the excess back into the movement, um, including you know radio stations like 3CR, struggles on the ground, um, picket lines and so on, um, and live the same lifestyle as the people that I represent, which I've done as a councillor for the last 14 years. So it's not a question of a promise. It's just carrying on what I've done already so in the last decade and a half on the Arab Council. You've been, you've been with the Yarrow Council for 14 years. Why now? Why have you chosen to run for Parliament now? Um, because it's... Um, well, there's an international push in the sense that we want to test the watershed to see if there's any interest here to the degree that there is in other parts of the Western world or the advanced capitalist world for revival of socialist ideas. Um, on the ground, we're under a lot of pressure from people who are saying, look, you know, it's great on council. Um, find the flag, but so much of what we fight for on council is stymied by state law, for example, planning law, um, education, transport, health. They're all state issues, law and order. Um, the inability of you know, the government to keep bosses in line and make them pay their legal wage requirements in many cases. Um, so we've got to take it to the next level. So I reached out late last year to various left-wing groups, uh, put the case, we came together, with, you know, registered a party name, and it's gone like wildfire. So that's what we've done. If we'd done it earlier, it would have been too early and it would have been just no chance of winning. If we left it too late, um, the right-wing populists would have stepped in, um, which they've been trying to do, but we've sort of blocked that in the northern suburbs and would have said, oh, you know, um, if we just had less, fewer migrants, fewer fewer refugees, uh, the whole, you know, all our border problems would be fixed. So there was a bit of pressure from both the top and the bottom to act now. And um, we've done it, and I think the timing's been quite good. Uh, how do people become involved? Because you've got a, bit, a lot of people who uh, are grassroots people who have involved themselves in this, haven't they? Yeah, you just go on our Facebook page or go on our webpage and all the details are there. And um, we've got an office at Trades Hall on the second floor. You can pop in during the day if you want to. Um, but yeah, if you want to help in any way on election day and pre-poll, let it just hand out leaflets. You know, door knock and give us a donation, anything at all. It'd be really appreciated. Um, and I encourage all your listeners to think about that today. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, Fiona and Tilly and uh, we were all congratulating ourselves on the very fine choice of uh, Permission to Shine by Bachelor Girl as we barrack for the socialists in the northern metropolitan region coming up to the next Victorian election, November the 24th. Yes, well, Fiona, you you were very impressed by the socialists. I was. I'm I'm utterly... I feel inspired and I feel like this is um, the time is right and it, that 
I can see this change happening and I can see a shift. And um, and I, and Steve spoke about you know if you if if you le- if they left it too late, you know the the um, the far right may have gained um, a hold, you know. Uh, over the over the electorate and over people, so I feel like yeah, the time is right, and they've 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 intervened, um, uh, and they're in, they're inspired by international movements, which have been proven to be successful with um, Corbyn and Sanders, um, and the same kind of thing could happen here. And people just need to be, people just need to see there is another way of doing things, and um, they can take control of their lives, and they can improve their lives, and. Um, we don't need to, you know, swallow the ridiculous rhetoric that the major parties give us. One, one of the most uh, compelling things about this is that uh, both Steve Jolly and uh, Sue Bolton uh, have been incredibly effective uh, uh, local councillors where they've actually got runs on the board, which is because uh, uh, many people um, hold aspiration and hope uh, but as a rather interesting poster that was around the town, uh, has, it pops up occasionally, hope is not a strategy. <laughs> uh, but to actually see you can have effect in a positive way using actual tools and combining together to get a result uh, around your local issues is extremely compelling, isn't it? It is. It is, and you hear that he's actually listening to the needs of the electorate. Like he's considering extending the 86 tram line, so he's consulting the people with the policies, which is really valuable. Quite fascinating, Uh, which uh, is a little bit different from the reactions we've been getting from federal politicians. You were saying, Tilly, that uh, uh, slow-mo has decided that you should apply to God if you're going to deal with droughts. Yes, this week's ScoMo prayed for rain, and it's actually rained, so his <laughs> his policy is working for him, <laughs> which is pretty hilarious. <laughs> anyway, uh, we'll give you a lowdown on uh, the uh, the program. Uh, we looked at social media, and uh, is it dealing is it dealing a blow to privacy? We moved on to uh, an exhibition uh, from uh, her place. Uh, exhibition which is going to now gone from Morwell and is c- coming up to Pakenham Library which is on the corner of John and Henry Street in Pakenham 24th of October to the 8th of November it's moving on to the Eureka Centre in Stall Street in Ballarat later on on the 14th of November the 10th of December showcasing Women of Consequence and uh we then went on to This Is The Week That Was and then we had a chat with Steve Jolly. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. Thanks for being in the studios. Thanks, Annie. Thanks, Annie. And we're going to go out with uh, Mia Dyson because she's terrific, Dancing on the Edge.
magic moment won't last As everything comes to an end And then it happens You reach your lowest point And then it changes You rise back up again See your suffering Badly hidden by your charm You have everyone laughing in the crowd You have everyone praying you will slow down listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.